Well, J.W. had his guitar turned up really loud in my ear, and I loved that, but I can't hear it in my right ear right now, so that's going to be a weird way to preach, right? But, uh, okay, uh, let, this is a little bit scattered, uh, the sermon. I, I, had, I intended to go a different direction with this uh, and to talk about why the church is important, but, but I, I figured, well, actually... Uh, when we were doing our new member class, Lynn actually asked me at the new member class, well, how often do y'all celebrate the Lord's Supper? And uh, I said, well, you know, um, that's one of those things kind of in flux with me because I grew up probably, if if, if you grew up Southern Baptist, like the tradition Southern Baptist had was we we did the Lord's Supper four times a year. Y'all remember that? And, uh, you know, it was just sort of, at my church, we always did it at night. So I grew up in a church where if you didn't come to evening service, you never took the Lord's Supper, which was, which was in, an interesting thing. Um, but then in the past several years, even in our Southern Baptist circles, especially among church plants, uh, taking the Lord's Supper on a more regular basis has become uh, uh, more common. Uh, some churches celebrate every week, some celebrate every month. And so, you know, this is one of those things I'm trying to find the, the right balance uh, of, because I do understand why traditionally Southern Baptists have not wanted it to become something that, that was just a, going through the motions, but didn't want it to be ritualistic. On the other hand, uh, something Jesus did command us to do. So uh, there's a question, right? How often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? There probably is no right or wrong answer, except if you said never do it. Uh, but how does our church make a decision on how much we should do the Lord's Supper? Is that something delegated to me? Is that something we need to decide as a congregation? Um, interesting question, isn't it? How do churches make decisions? How should churches make decisions? What do you say? Prayerfully. Prayerfully. Okay, that's a, that's a great answer, right? Uh, you know, what, do, what are we supposed to do when we gather together as a church? Who is the church? So just some conversations out of our new member class and just some, some other conversations I've had recently. Just kind of, I started thinking about this. Uh, on the, we went to California this week to look at a college with Adelaide. And I was just, I grabbed a book that kind of focused on that, that gave me a lot of ideas. And I was, I, was, I was really just grabbing that book to study about the Lord's Supper. And then as I started to read the book, I thought, man... There's a bigger issue here. The, the issue is not just how much should we celebrate the Lord's Supper or how do we decide how, how many times we should do the Lord's Supper. But the real question is, what is the church supposed to be doing? And then I thought, the bigger question there is, what is the church? And normally, you know, the way I preach is I start in a book and go through. And so I've addressed some of these things as we've gone through books that have addressed it. But this morning, I really want to preach on a theme and maybe have a series while we're in between books. The next book we'll go to is Titus. But while we're in between books, I thought maybe I will preach on a theme for several weeks, which is unusual. Uh, I, I think preachers are supposed to preach out of books. We know we're supposed to preach from a text. But occasionally, I think it's okay for a preacher to do some theology from the pulpit. Um, I think it would be better done on a Sunday night. But if I said, hey, I'm going to preach about the church uh, on Sunday night, uh, there would be like 20 people here. So I thought, you know, <laughs> let's just do this in the morning. 
so people can hear it and, and hopefully you won't be bored when I, when I kind of present it that way to like have a conversation or a sermon about what the church is. I hope you would enjoy learning about the church. Is the church important to you? Hasn't the church been something that's mattered your whole life? And yet we don't get a lot of teaching on the church. What we normally get teaching on is just like, what's essential? Well, we know what's essential, don't we? It's essential that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing, isn't it? That there's a Savior, uh, His name is Jesus, and you need to put your trust in Him. And sometimes we're tempted to say, nothing else matters besides that. And yet we understand in the Great Commission, you're told to do what? Go. Uh, uh, make disciples baptize them and what's the other thing he says teach them to obey everything I've commanded so, so we to, to kind of get uh, where I'm going the idea is that in the church is where we see a lot of that the teaching uh, to, to obey how are we supposed to live out our faith well we know we're supposed to live out our faith together in the church Okay, that's God's plan A. Do you all know what plan B is? There's no plan B. All right, so, so he, he said it's not going to fail. All right, we're going to study that this morning. So this is very exciting. I don't want it to be boring to you. Uh, so I, I, I said we're going to do a study of the church. The, the doctrinal name for when you study the church is called ecclesiology. Everybody say it with me. Ecclesiology. Oh, no, don't you feel smart that you said a new word today? And ecclesia is the Greek word for church. That means the assembly that's been called out. So that's ecclesia. And then ology is like biology or, or whatever the other ologies are. Uh, theology just means study of. So study of the church. And, and we spend a lot of time in seminary studying the church. And so I do want us to answer these questions. You know, how is the gospel displayed in our lives as members of the church? How are we supposed to live together as Christians, as the church? What are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do? How do we make decisions? And I want to talk about this from a very uh, 10,000 foot view level. And if you want to learn more about this, we can go to lunch or something. I can teach you more in depth. But one question I think is that what is the true church? What is, what is a true church? And how do we know what the true church is and what true churches are, speaking locally? Why do we have all these denominations? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why, are all the, all, why aren't we just meeting in one building today with all the Christians in Olney, as opposed to meeting in these different churches that have different names? That's a good question, isn't it? Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Well, which, which one's right? Are there churches that are wrong? Let's answer the question by looking in the book of Matthew. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20 will be our text. And we want to look at what is the true church this morning. And I'm going to go quickly because everyone loved getting out early and it made me a very popular preacher last week. So we're going to try to do that again. So Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20. This is a turning point in the book of Matthew. This is a really important uh, passage of scripture you will recognize when your eyes hit it because this is where Peter makes the declaration of who Jesus is and after this uh, declaration that the Holy Spirit the, the, reveals to Peter or that the Father reveals to Peter uh, uh, Jesus begins to teach his disciples more about who he is and what's about to happen to him that he's going to die and that he's going to be raised again on the third day 
Matthew chapter 16, verse uh, 13. Is everybody there? Okay. Now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He, uh, and, uh, uh, he asked his disciples, this is verse 13, who do people... <clears throat> excuse me there. I'm almost through with puberty, but it's... <laughs> taken 50 years Uh, and they said so Jesus says who do people say the son of man is and they said some say John the Baptist others say Elijah others Jeremiah or one of the prophets who do people say the son of man is you know people are still trying to say who the son of man is who is Jesus people say all sorts of things about Jesus And we can study what different religions say about Jesus. What did the Muslims say? What did the Jews say? What did the other world religions say? Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus, even people who don't think he existed. Or perhaps you find people that think he existed, but he was just a good teacher. He wasn't God. But would a good teacher really tell you that he was God? Because if I went to class and the professor got up there and said, just want you to know I'm God and I'm going to judge every person that's ever lived and I'm going to send them to heaven or hell, you know what I would do? I would say... Uh, I'm dropping this class, and I'm going to go take another one with someone that's not crazy. So really, it's hard to take Jesus apart from his claims. You either take the whole enchilada or you leave it behind because he's either telling the truth that he is God, that he is the judge of the universe, or he's crazy. And that's really your, your two options. Or he was totally mistaken. But either way, you, don't, you, you either take it or leave it when it comes to Jesus. And people all have different uh, ideas about who Jesus is. If you walked out and asked people, you'd probably get different answers. Have you ever taken your money to Walmart, like you've saved up all the change, and they have that green machine? It's a really fun thing to do, isn't it? You have all this change, and you dump it in here, and it sorts it all out. There's all these different sized holes, and it sorts out all the change. And some coins are worth more than others. And in the end, you, I mean, you get rewarded a little bit more for a quarter than you do a penny, But when they're all done, you get the little slip and you go to the register for the cash and you get a reward for all your money, whether it was a penny or a quarter, it doesn't matter. Well, imagine that there's a sorter. It's not at Walmart. I don't know where this would be. But you can dump all the opinions and all the answers about who Jesus is in that sorter. But you know what? It's not going to reward you for every answer that you put in. When it comes to Jesus, there's only one answer that gets you the reward of eternal life as to who do people say the Son of Man is. Who is Jesus? Only one answer is right. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? But then look what he says in verse 15 to his disciples. He's heard the other opinions, and now he asks them personally, who do you say that I am? You ever talk to somebody about Jesus? Had a conversation about the gospel And at some point, you know, they're starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. They don't want to offend you. Uh, They don't want to really say anything. They don't want to commit to anything. They're uncomfortable with the conversation. And they just say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't want to deal with Jesus. I don't want to have to work through this. I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to think about dying. I don't want, you know, and I always thought that was strange. And we would, when I was a kid, we'd knock on people's doors uh, for our evangelism explosion and we'd knock on the door and we'd be like, if you died tonight, that was probably not the best way to start off the conversation. Just, hello, hey, can I ask you a question? If you died tonight, we're already, they're like, I don't want to think about that. You know, we'd say, if you died tonight, why, what, what would you say to God when he asked, why should I let you into my heaven? And we got a lot of responses like that. I remember the, the I think the, 
the, the thing I remember most is we went out with this, there was this tall, old, red-headed guy, and he was awkward as he could be, but he loved to witness to people, as ineffective as he was. Uh, he did not have the gift of evangelism, but he did have the gift of faithfulness. I'll give that to the guy. And he would take teenagers out, and, and, and people would, you know, I remember we, we knocked on this door, and it was this old fellow with red hair, and uh, Jackson, my friend Jackson and me were standing there, and we said, can we ask you a couple of questions? And we had Bibles in our hands, and that guy took one look at us, and he just... <laughs> He just slammed that door shut. And uh, we went back and they said, well, how, how did it go? I was like, well, we've never really had the door slammed that hard in our face when we tried to tell somebody about Jesus. We didn't want to talk about it. But can you deal with Jesus that way? Can you really just shut the door and try to shut it out? No. What did Jesus say? Whoever is not with me is against me. There's no neutrality with Jesus. You can say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. But Jesus doesn't let you do that. He says, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. If you're not working for me, you're working against me. And so he says to Peter and the disciples, who am I? And Simon Peter speaks up as he was always prone to do it. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said back to Peter in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petra, you are rock. So Jesus is kind of making a play on words here. You are rock, and on this rock, not Peter, but on this rock of Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my church. And the gates of hell, or, or as my, I have a, my computer, uh, I, I put some app on there years ago that takes out every cuss word, so mine says the gates of heck uh, shall not. <laughs> so I always have to go back and change it to the cuss word, you know. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But what is this rock? This rock is the truth. Jesus is the son of the living God. He's the savior. There is a Christ who has come. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God is another way to say you're the truth. You're the good news. You're the gospel. You are what the gospel is about, Jesus. This truth that you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one who has come to die for us that we might be forgiven of our sins and have peace with God. And Jesus says, on this truth, the truth about who I am and what I'm doing, I will build the church. The church is built on the gospel. What is the true church? A true church is a church built on the true gospel. If I was going to sum up the sermon uh, in one sentence, that's it. A true church is built on the true gospel. We don't build the church, and Jesus is not building his church on good feelings. Everybody likes to come to church and have good feelings. People love to go. I I saw all on social media uh, this week that there was a church in Oklahoma City, and I mean, they had a bigger production at their Easter service than they do at the Grammys. Did y'all see that? They had all the dancers and all the fire and smoke and lights and everything. Jesus isn't building his church on entertainment. All right? Are we here to feed sheep or entertain goats? Because that's going to look different, isn't it? Depending on what we're doing. And goats don't generally like coming to church. And so we've spent all these years trying to make the goats like church, and here, that's not the point of it, is it? We're here to feed the sheep. 
Jesus is not building his church on spiritual individuals alone, but rather on a body of people who have covenanted together to follow Christ together. He hasn't built his church on charitable societies. But the ecclesia is what Jesus is going to build as he calls us out from the world to follow him, as he says in that next passage, to take up our cross and to daily follow him. And we do that together in the church. Aren't you glad we have the church? What would it be like if we didn't have the church? You'd be having to do all the Christian life by yourself. You ever try to live the Christian life by yourself? You can't do it. You can't do it. That's why we need each other. That's why we're supposed to be a body, all connected to one another, and then connected to the head that gives us life. And so he says, on this truth, I will build the church. And he's going to build the church. It's going to be founded by these men, these apostles, and he gives them the keys to the kingdom. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You ever remember uh, the first time you were given the keys? Remember back in the days we'd say, do you have the car keys? You remember because there was one key that got you in the door and there was another key that, that did the ignition. You all remember that? Like, the, Was it the round one that got you in the door on the GM cars and the square one that did the... I don't remember how, exactly how it worked, but some of you are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you all missed out on having two keys. <clears throat> now you just got a button, all right? Takes all the fun. We had a rental car this week, and, and to open up the door, you had to actually put the key in the door and turn it. And I was like, what is this? I, it took me, I was like, okay, I've got to go back in my mind to like 1993. All right. And then I remembered you could do it twice. Remember that technology? You could hit it twice and it would open all the doors. It was awesome. Uh, felt young again. So the first time you got the keys, what were you given? You were given responsibility, weren't you? To take the car out for a spin. You were given a trust. And it's the same thing. Jesus gives the apostles the keys. He's giving them a stewardship. He's allowing the apostles to represent the Father. He's letting the apostles represent him. It's a stewardship. And the church has been given these keys. That's, uh, uh, we understand we, we have a, a responsibility and a trust to build and to build on and to work out and to, the, to be faithful to the teachings of the apostles that teach us about Jesus, that teach us the gospel. That, that's the binding and loosing is our representing God to a lost and dying world. People can't go outside and see God, but they can see us. Because we've been given the keys, we're representing God. Best lawyer I ever saw is a lawyer, I don't know if he still practices or not, it's a Stephenville, his name is Gary Llewellyn. And I've probably told you about him before in a sermon. But Gary was one of the last lawyers admitted to Texas without taking the bar exam. He just, or without going to law school, he just took the bar exam and passed it. Which seems like the test wasn't as hard as it was for me. That's what I tell, tell myself. But he was doing a murder case in Eastland County, and I was watching it. Total tragedy, st- stupid case uh, where uh, alcohol and foolishness combined and... You know, people always say, if y'all keep acting like that, somebody's going to get killed. This was like that situation. And uh, unfortunately, in that case, a young man had lost his life. And 
Gary Llewellyn was representing the defendant. And he stood up there in his open and he said, all I'm asking, he did the jury, all I'm asking you to do is give my client a fair shake. He said, they've overcharged him. This wasn't a murder. It was a tragic accident. So we're asking you to call it like you see it. Like an umpire calls balls and strikes. If it's a ball, call it a ball. If it's a strike, call it a strike. And in the end of the day, if they haven't proved their case, you've got to cut them loose with the not guilty. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, they got a not guilty. It's the first time I'd ever seen the judge like banging on the order in the court because everybody was jumping over the rail. It was crazy. Uh, they jumped into the well, over the bar, uh, to try to assault the defendant. It, the family was very upset. It was one of those crazy matters. But the jury just did what the jury was told to do. They followed the judge's instructions exactly. And, you know, the church is kind of like a jury on spiritual matters. You know, I, I can't... You, you, so if you came down to me today and you said, I need to be saved, can I save you? We talked about this in Sunday school, you know. No, I, I can't convict you of sin. I can't, I haven't died for your sins. I can't cover you with the blood of Jesus. I can give you the message. And then together as the church, not just me, but together as the church, what do we do? How do we know whether to baptize somebody or uh, to give someone assurance that they're saved or to let someone take the Lord's Supper or not? Well, we've been given the keys. Not to save people, not to damn people, but this binding and loosing is sort of like we're declaring, we're representing. We know our limitations here. But what we do with those keys is we call it like we see it. And we can say to someone, you are making a, a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe, as best as we can tell, God's moving and working in you and changing you. And what a, what a blessing to be able to baptize you, to receive you by statement, to admit you as a member of this body of our Savior Jesus Christ, to come and be an ambassador, come be a key holder with us. And so that's what we do. We declare what His Word says. We flesh, we, we live it out. That's probably the better way to say it. And we do that in light of the truth of the Gospel. So isn't that a great responsibility to bear the keys to the kingdom? What a great responsibility for the church. So what is the true church? What is the true key-holding church? The true church, as I said, is one that declares the true gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is the Christ? The Christ is the Son of David. The Christ is the Son of Man. The Christ is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Passover Lamb who has come into the world for His people to shed His blood, to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf so that death might pass over us and that we might have eternal life. The true church of Jesus Christ, who is it? It's all the people for all time that have ever believed in Jesus. The ones that believed he was coming and, the one, uh, and looked forward to his coming and put their faith in the promise of God. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Is Abraham part of the church in a sense? Absolutely. He didn't see, it, he didn't see as much or as clearly as we do, but he believed the promise and by faith he was saved. How are you saved? By faith as you look back at what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so the true church is all people for all time that have believed in Jesus and have believed in the true gospel. So where is that church? You know, we sometimes call that the invisible church or the little c Catholic church, the universal church. 
But here's the interesting thing about all churches. They always are expressed in local bodies. Where did Paul write his letter? Did he just write a letter to the Christians and then just throw it up in the air? (laughs) I guess it'll get there somehow. No, he addressed it to somewhere. To the churches in Ephesus. To the church in Galatia. To the church in Rome. Because there's people that gather together. We understand we make up a body that we relate to one another. And so every church is expressed in a local way. And there are all kinds of true churches. So contrary to what some people might say about Baptists, we don't believe that there's like a special room in heaven for us and everybody tiptoes around it because we think we're the only ones there. No, we don't, we don't think we're the only true church as Baptists. We don't think we're the only church or the only denomination or however you might say that that's going to heaven. But here's what we do know. We do know that not all churches who say they are churches preach the true gospel. Okay? Thus, if a church is not proclaiming the true gospel, is Jesus Christ building, building that church? Because what did Jesus say he was doing? He said he's going to build his church on the true gospel. On this rock, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, Does a church preach Christ or not? Do they preach the gospel or not? What does that mean? Okay, what is the true gospel? Is the true gospel that Jesus saves you 99.9% of the way and you do the rest by your own goodness? But 99.9%. That's pretty good, right? I mean, Jesus gets you most of the way there and then you've just got to get yourself the rest of the way, right? No, of course not. Are you saved by grace? Yes, you're saved by grace through faith, which is also a gift of God. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by some of your works. The true gospel is you need a Christ. That's why it's so important for Peter to say, you're the Christ. You're the one that we've been waiting on. Ever since our first parents fell, ever since our first parents fell into sin, We've been waiting on the one that would come and would fix this mistake. The one that would right all the wrongs. The one who would pass the tests that Adam failed. We need a new Adam. You're the new Adam. You're our only hope. And there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We can't be saved by our own efforts. The Bible teaches us that Jesus 100% saves you and that he 100% keeps you saved. So that's a very simple way to tell what a true church is, isn't it? You don't, look at th- you don't look at all the things like, well, what do they, they dress different than we do, or they, they say different words, or they stand up and sit down a lot more than we do. If you go to all these churches here in Olney, there's a lot of, they're going to look a lot, a lot different. You go to ch- all the churches in Texas. I heard somewhere that there's like 30,000 different denominations. That's hard for me to believe. But, you know, there's... Uh, so many different expressions of the church that wind up being expressed locally in different places. So you can't just have a list and say, well, I've narrowed it down. These 15,000 are true churches and these 15,000 aren't or whatever. The question is, is this church preaching the true gospel? That's, what, that's the way you know that it's a true church. Now, can churches be true churches and be doing some things wrong? Yes. Okay. Is it, is it possible and probably likely that we don't have everything right? 
Uh, yes. So there's a certain amount of humility that's required on our behalf, isn't it? We don't want to be like, we're the ones that are right and everybody else is wrong. You know? We want to search the scripture. We want to be like the Bereans. We want to search the scripture to make sure these things are so. We want to have a clear conscience about the way that we're following God and the way we're teaching other people to do that. But we do that with humility, knowing we don't have all the answers. There's certain things that aren't going to be revealed or cleared up until heaven. So just because people do some things differently doesn't mean that they're a false church. Even though some people do some things that are in error does not mean that they're a false church. We might say that they're irregular, and we want to be more regular. We want to be regulated by the Word of God. And some churches do some things that aren't regulated by the Word of God. We don't want to fall into that camp. But some churches do. But the question that we have to say is, are they a true church? Is, are they preaching the true gospel? Could someone go in there and say, I am convicted of my sin, and I'm afraid that if I died tonight, a holy God would judge me and I would go to hell. What must I do to be saved? And we would tell them, well, there's nothing you can do to be saved. Jesus, you must believe that Jesus has done it all. That's how you rely upon him 100%. There's nothing you can do. You know, we were, uh, my favorite illustration on that point is flying. And we took the airplane ride there to Ontario, California this week. And uh, I, I was just thinking, you know, when I go up in those, when I go up into the, uh, the swings at Six Flags. Have you ever seen those? Raise your hand if you've ever seen the swings at Six Flags. And raise your hand if when you saw those swings, you said, I'm never going on that. Okay, a lot of the, okay I'm not that smart. I've got up there. And uh, every time I go up there, I think this was the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, because it's so high. I don't even know how tall that ride is. But it's, unbelie- it's so tall that when you're up there, the whole time your stomach is just turning over. Because you can't believe how dumb you were. Uh, like, why did I get up in this machine? This was so stupid. But isn't it weird to be on an airplane and look out the window and you're 30,000 feet up in the air and you're looking down and somehow you're not afraid? I don't even know how that works because I don't even know how airplanes work. Like, really, I can't tell you the first thing about how to make a jet engine. Now, I know some of you all work at Air Tractor and you can tell me things about jet engines that, and how they work. I know a little bit about lift and drag and, and, and how airplanes get up in the air, but really not that much. Like, I would not trust myself to build a wing or uh, something like that. I know Casey builds wings, uh, but I, I wouldn't trust myself to do that. And yet, there we all were, you know, getting in line, and the, the, the ticket agent was yelling at us to get in a single file line and all this. And there we just all lined up, and we went on and got in this giant metal tube that weighs tons, and somehow we were just going to trust this giant metal tube is going to go really fast, and it's going to go 30,000 feet up in there, and it's going to take me back home. And, and I sat down in the plane. This is where I always give the illustration this way, especially the kids. I, say, I sat down in the plane, and you know what I did when the plane started taking off? I started flapping my arms as fast as I could to try to help that captain. <clears throat> I wanted to do all I could to help us get up in the air, so I did this until we were way up. Of course I didn't do that. But wouldn't that be what it is if somebody says, you've got to do your part to get into heaven? That'd be like getting on that plane and flapping your wings. You're not helping yourself get to heaven. You're not aiding Jesus because you don't have any righteousness or merit to aid him with. You are fully subject to the mercy of God. That's what, the God, that's what it means. You're the Christ. We needed you to come because we have no hope. That's the true gospel 
of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is building his church on. Not a church of people who think they're good. I remember that's what Ray told me years ago. I don't even know how many years ago. He's like, what did I tell you? What is he about to say about me? It was good. It was good. Ray said, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd drive back and forth here and see the church on Main Street. And he said, I used to think that the people all went there because they thought they were good. Like a bunch of do-gooders, right, Ray? Just a bunch of people trying to be good. He said, now that I'm a Christian, I realize that you go in there because you realize you're not good and you needed someone to be good for you. You are the Christ. That's what that means. We needed the one to be good for us. We needed the perfect sacrifice because we have nothing to offer God. We have no righteousness to offer Him to say, let me in. Unless we're covered with the blood of Jesus and then we plead His righteousness and that is how we're made acceptable to God. That is the foundation Jesus builds the church on. There's no other foundation. And there's no church built on a false gospel. So that's the question. When we start saying, what is the church? The question is, is this a church or not? Is this something Jesus is building or not? And then I would say, personally, because churches are made up of people, We're made up of people who've all confessed Jesus Christ as our Savior and that have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a deeper question, not just to say, okay, you could say, well, I know what the church is. I'm glad I came to church today. But here, let me ask you this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because that's really what this church is about. It's about proclaiming the message of who Jesus is to the world and to you. Are you part of a body of Christ? Have you been connected to Jesus? Do you do that Through faith. By believing that there's nothing that you can do. By understanding that gospel message. By believing that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will never perish. But have eternal life. A lot of different kinds of people in here. Some are older. Some are younger. Some are richer. Some are poorer. Some are better looking. Some are not. Okay, well that's just reality, right? Y'all are all pretty. But we all have one thing in common if we're a member of this church and that we're completely dependent upon Jesus Christ for our salvation, for our eternal life. That is the most basic gospel truth. And the true church exists only because of the true gospel. The church arises from the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that, if, we're, if we're built on the gospel, what does that mean? That we are supposed to be making the gospel visible. We make the gospel visible to a lost and dying world. How? As we follow Christ together and we answer the question, this is who Jesus is. He is our Lord. And we've taken up our cross and we are following him every day. So I hope you wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus? And we wrestle with that question alone before we proclaim it together. So where do you stand? You've heard the gospel today. You've heard it sung. You've heard it preached. You've heard it prayed. Who is Jesus? If you believe He's the Christ and you know you need a Christ because you have no way to cleanse yourself before a holy God, if you know that today, if you believe that, then the Bible says anyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you know you're a sinner and you need salvation, the Bible's very clear. There's salvation available. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. I pray if you are lost here today, you will, you will call upon the name of the Lord today. And I pray here that if you have been saved, if you have eternal life, if you've been saved from, your, from the punishment of sin and death, that you will commit yourself to the church because it's God's plan to make the gospel the most important thing in our lives visible to a lost and dying world.